Hello, I'm TJ and welcome to my garden. Uh, today I'm going to be talking about the all-new square foot gardening. Uh, I've decided to do book reviews semi-regularly. I'm going to do two this week, this one, and I'm also going to do one on lasagna gardening. Uh, but I thought I would tackle these since I'm really going to focus the podcast more on community and school gardening. Uh, these are two ways to start a garden without a lot of infrastructure already in place. Uh, they allow you to bypass poor soil conditions and they create sort of a systemized way of doing it that is pretty organized, easy to follow, and doesn't require you to have a lot of other horticultural knowledge to keep it uh, going forward. Now, there are problems with both these systems, and I'll talk about them a little bit as I'm doing the review. But overall, I think they're pretty solid, so I thought I'd start this week with those. Um, I will continue with some other ones. I have the newest edition of the Straw Bale Gardening book. I'll be talking about that probably next week or the following week. I don't know yet. We'll see how that goes. Um, but this week you get two reviews. So uh, let me read you some of the stuff on the cover here. Over 2 million copies sold. Grow more in less space. Has a picture of uh, Mel Bartholomew sitting next to one of his square foot gardens. It says Mel Bartholomew across the top. Best-selling garden author. Um, it's put out by Cool Springs Press. Uh, from the back cover, Grow More in Less Space, uh, Leon from New Mexico says, FF SFG is by far the best method for someone who wants good veggies with the least amount of work. Noel and Lori in Canada, we had only six weeds all summer. I find that hard to believe. Well, maybe not in Canada. Their seed bank is probably pretty small because of their short growing season. Uh, Diana from Indiana, you are stunned at how much growing, or we are stunned at how much is growing in so small a space. Uh, Deborah from South Carolina. Incredible. The most gratifying gardening experience in my life. Well, that's that's not much to live up to. Uh, Frank from Virginia. I only spent five to ten minutes per day tending to my square foot garden. Failed to see how that's a bonus. I guess for what we're going to be talking about it is. Uh, because being able to cut down the amount of time it takes to maintain a community garden or a school garden is kind of an advantage. But for a home garden... I, I want to spend more time in my garden, so cutting it down to five or ten minutes is, is a bad thing. I mean, I'm just sitting there drinking. Well, I guess there is a bonus there. I could be sitting there drinking a mint julep instead of actually working, but I do kind of enjoy getting down in the dirt, so I don't know if that's a bonus. Anyway, uh, if you want to grow more veggies and flowers in less space, all new square foot gardening is for you. Author Mel Bartholomew takes you through his proven square foot gardening method adopted by satisfied gardeners for more than 25 years. Now, in all new square foot gardening, Mel unveils 10 new improvements and sa uh, that save you more time and more money. Sorry, it's my... I'm not wearing my glasses, so I apologize if my reading isn't quite on. For a second, I thought there was a misspelling in the book, but it's just my eyes not working as well as they should. Uh, da -da 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 -da. All with a lot less work. And with all new square foot gardening, you no longer have to worry about weeds and fertilizer. Gardeners everywhere enthusiastically endorse Mel Bartholomew's revolutionary new square foot gardening method. Uh, I got this for like three bucks because <laughs> I bought it used. Um, I Let me, just to be fair. Oh, mine was owned originally by K. Terusa, whoever that is. Just has that written in the front. I never noticed that before. Um, da, 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 da. The latest copyright notice looks to be 2005, so this is a 2005 edition. I believe there have been a reprinting or two, so the new reprintings may differ from what I'm talking about here. Um, I'm going to guess, mostly just hope it's not substantially in content, uh, but I don't think 
I don't think any criticisms I have about the book, and there are a couple, uh, I don't think any of them are going to be edition specific, meaning I don't think there's going to be some changes in the newer edition where he's just going to go through the entire text and remove the things I had issue with that are going to make it no longer relevant to what I'm talking about here. So I think we're still okay. Um, so the book is laid out the way a lot of these sort of, I don't want to say gimmick gardening, but I guess that term kind of applies. Um, these sort of system books are, are laid out, which is you get a you know an introduction about why the, the method's good, how it developed, yeah, yeah. And then you get a uh, chapter that pretty much gives you the method. So in this, that chapter pretty much tells you to use Mel's mix, which is basically just a potting mix. It's equal parts uh, perlite or vermiculite. I don't know if he says or. I think he recommends perlite, but vermiculite usually works in its place. Uh, peat moss, which I'll talk a little bit about, more about peat moss in a bit. And uh, compost. Yeah, he suggests using multiple forms of mixed compost. So maybe some different forms of compost and manure with, say, municipal compost or uh, something from a worm farm, that sort of thing. Just mix it up to get a more a wider, what am I looking for? A wider diversity of uh, nutrients and micronutrients than you would get just from compost. Um, and then you, the other part of it is that you grow them in a raised bed. You mark the raised bed off into uh, square feet, hence the name. And there is a variant of this called the square meter garden, um, which comes out, I believe, roughly the same. They mark it, uh, I believe the squares are thirds of a meter in the square meter gardening method, but otherwise it is substantially the same system. Uh, and then you use planting layouts, which um, are based on kind of ignoring the back of seed packets and planting a little closer. This is this part. I do agree with him is um, even though I'm not sure. So well, let me say what he says so that what I say is about to make sense. Um, he points out that when he started gardening, he was an engineer. He wasn't a gardener. And when he came to it, all the experts were saying, you know, that you, you planted in these very specific row gardens and yada, yada, which. Might have been true in the 70s. I don't know. I know that that's not really how it's recommended now. Uh, but even in the 70s, I'm guessing this was maybe during one of the many periods where gardening sort of had a rise in popularity and a fall and a rise again. And he was talking to people who only had agricultural experiment, experience. And there are very good reasons why farms plant in big wide rows that are completely non-applicable to uh, home gardens or even small market gardens. I mean, uh, when you get to a point where your market garden is straddling the definition between market garden and um sorry straddling the definition between market garden and a farm then you are basically at that point you you, you kind of go between the two but for a home garden or a market garden you just need rows big enough to fit a foot in so you can walk between them and you can actually plant multiple rows together and then space between to walk, which is basically what this is. So he recommends you don't make your square feet bed more than, say, four feet wide, um, just because that's what you can usually comfortably reach inside to do. And then the length can be as variable as you need it to be. Um, I believe, although I'm not sure in the book, I think that he also, I have the book in front of me, I just haven't memorized every page. But I think there's, uh, like, he shows, like, keyhole gardens, that sort of thing, too, where you kind of make a C shape so that you still only have a four foot reach from any point, but you can kind of squeeze in a little more uh, growing area. But yeah, so that's the basic method is you're growing in a raised bed. Uh, the raised bed is marked off in square feet. You use a planting template that is based on planting for a square foot and it plants a little densely, but you can get away with that because you're not using your own soil. You're using the Mel's mix. 
Um, so basically, what the square foot gardening really is for, you know, if you too long didn't read folks, your container gardening on a very large scale. This is no different than planting your plants in pots and planting kind of densely, but using a really rich potting mix. Um, the difference here is that you're doing it over, say, a four by four by two foot tall or one foot tall square foot bed. So you're not um, growing in a small scale, you're growing in a larger scale, uh, which makes it more like traditional gardening in other ways, but it's still functionally the same as, as a container garden. Um, and there are a lot of advantages, uh, a few disadvantages to that. Uh, one is because you're not actually actively improving your soil. Um, I'll talk about it in a second that you kind of are, but for the most part, you're not dramatically doing anything to improve the soil underneath. You're kind of bypassing it. And so you don't get the long-term benefits of improving your soil quality. Now, you can kind of sidestep that because you are getting long-term benefits of the mix, even though you're going to keep having to top it off and add to it. You would also have to continue amending your own soil. So there's not a lot of distinction there. Uh, the only difference is if you decide you want to get rid of the beds and just use the ground, then you have to start all over. But that's really the only major disadvantage with that. Um, now, let me uh, go back to my notes real quick because I want to make sure I'm not skipping over a bunch of stuff before I go too far ahead. But it does work. Um, one, okay, no, this is actually next thing in my notes. My main problem with this entire book is the sort of, I don't know really how to describe it. He has a very pervasive anti-expert vibe. And I think, I don't know that that's necessarily a product of him actually having a problem with uh, experts in the field. It, because he's an engineer by trade, I believe, before he started doing all this. So I think that he's probably used to being an expert and dealing with experts. So I don't think he has an inherent problem with experts. I think this was him trying to commiserate with his target demographic of people who have had problems gardening in the past and trying to make them feel like, hey, these know-nothing know-it-alls can sort of, you know, sit and spin. You guys... Uh, you guys are, are, are the ones who, who can really know how to do it by doing this. And so he's always saying things like, the experts just can't understand it. Yes, Mel, they do. It's, it's container gardening. Experts understand it just fine. They don't understand why you'd want to do this rather than, say, I mean, on a large scale, rather than, say, growing row crops. But in a small scale, it, it works just fine. So there's no problem with it. Um, so that's, that's my main real dislike. I, I generally dislike the attitude and this isn't mel's fault it's our culture in general this growing anti-expert anti-intellectual thing i don't i don't like it uh experts are experts for a reason they've studied a topic extensively a genuine expert is very useful in a field and should be looked to his expertise doesn't mean that he's always right but an expert would by definition have a higher chance of being right than just some random guy off the street so that bugged me a little and i wouldn't recommend just using this book to teach out of directly to kids, although he does make a kid's version, which I have not read, so I can't, can't speak to that. But um, I wouldn't recommend using this book directly just because it's going to give kids the attitude that experts are wrong. And, I mean, to me, gardening is kind of a STEM field, you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And that's just the wrong tone to set, to say scientists are wrong, know-nothing, know-it-alls, and then, oh, yeah, but by the way, here's all the cool science. Like, it... it, it yeah, <laughs> that, that it's not so pervasive you can't enjoy the book. It just slightly bugged me. Um, and now let's go on a little bit about the peat that I was saying I'll talk about later. That one, um, P 
Pete is a little problematic. He he goes over in the book too. I don't agree with him, <laughs> but he has a whole section where he points out that even though people have objections to Pete, Pete is supposedly renewable. I don't agree with him because I don't agree with the, I believe it's the Canadian Pete, manuf- or, uh, not manufacturer, but I forget the name of the organization, but there, it, it's the organization that basically is the peat industry in Canada. And they put forth a claim uh, several years ago. They put, put out a paper which claims that the amount of peat, new peat that grows in any given peat bog over the entire span of Canada is more than the amount of peat being taken out of the bogs that are being actively mined. And so functionally, it is they claim it is a renewable product. And then they also point out that they do habitat restoration after they've removed uh, the peat. Now, one, the only studies you can really find that claim these things use just, you know, basically the numbers. They don't, they didn't, the study they present doesn't actually show that they went out and monitored the peat bogs for growth and saw this, yada, yada. They took the estimated amount of peat growth, you know, for a given area of land or whatever, and then they multiplied it by how much land they had, and then they subtracted from that what they're taking out a year, and that's their number, right? So it, 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 they didn't actually study the environment or what's happening. Um, the other big pro- bigger problem I have with it is, and several... Uh, biologists and environmental scientists and stuff, they've come out against it too, is they aren't really restoring the original habitat. What you, what they do when they mine peat is they scrape everything sort of off the top of the peat bog, right? They, they remove all the different plants, they get the animals out of there, yada, yada. They clear everything off. And then they cut out layer after layer after layer of the accumulated peat that's been building up there for years. So this is an ecosystem that's developed over thousands of years, in some cases, um, some cases it's hundreds of years, but whatever. Uh, these are ecosystems that have developed for a long time and they become their own sort of thing. And then they scrape all that off the top. They remove the major part of it, which is that peat. And then they put new fresh living peat over the top so that it'll start growing again. So what they've effectively done is cleared out a complex ecosystem and replaced it with a monoculture of peat, which is really good, you know, years and years and years and years and years down the road when their great-grandchildren are ready to mine more peat, uh, but it is not very good for the ecosystem as it stands now. So I don't agree that peat is necessarily sustainable. I don't know for sure that it's not, because I don't have numbers that say otherwise. Um, it's just that the what we've been told by this one industrial group that is being taken as gospel by a lot of people who use us to argue against um, basically peat bog, Uh, harvesting is not good science it's just not something we can really hang our hats on so more research needs to be done and that's not by and large happening uh in at least for the industry um obviously researchers are still studying peat bogs and things like that so i do have a problem with that part of the book but coca core is a renewable resource sort of um there is environmental damage with regards to uh when we're, we're actually growing the coconuts and stuff but basically once we've grown them and we're going to keep eating coconuts and the core is a byproduct of that whole industry so it's renewable in the sense that we're not getting rid of that industry anytime soon whether or not you consider the industry as a whole to be renewable is another matter but at least this is a waste product that is being diverted away from trash or you know 
landfills and being used uh, agriculturally. And by and large, it does operate pretty much the same as peat. There are some differences. Um, and a lot of them aren't really that relevant unless you're raising things that are very dependent on the chemicals from peat, like uh, certain carnivorous plants. Uh, Venus flytraps really pretty much don't grow very well on anything but peat. So you do need that actual substrate for those. Uh, but for something like your vegetables or something, provided you make sure that the coca core you're using doesn't have a lot of salt in it. So either, you know, some of them are actually marked low salt, meaning they've leached the salt out of it already. If not, if it's, you know, you can actually, this is going to sound gross to some people, you can taste a little bit. It is a food grade product. It's, it's harmless to dabble on your tongue. But you can taste the salt. Um, so if it's not marked, you can do that. Or either way, you just soak it a few times and let the water leach the salt out of it and you're, you're good to go. Uh, and it works just as well. So, and it's almost as cheap. So even though I don't agree with him about peat, I will say there's an alternative that works just fine. So this method still doable. And there is a bit of hypocrisy there because of course, peat is also used in the Scottish whiskey industry and I do occasionally enjoy a scotch. So, I mean, I'm not entirely without hypocrisy here. So I'm not, I'm not that judgmental on him. I just don't agree with that thing. So that, there's that. Uh, let's take a look at the notes real quick. So I'm doing okay-ish for time. Um, but yeah, it's uh, the biggest thing, though, I think the best thing about the method as it's laid out in the book is this is a method that is very easy for children, uh, for people with maybe disabilities, for people with health problems. Um, you can put some wood underneath one of these square foot beds and lift it up on a platform or something so that somebody who maybe has issues getting down there can actually work with it at a height they're more comfortable with. Uh, the soil will be relatively easy to dig around in, much more so than maybe your you know, natural soil is. Um, so it's a lot easier to dig in there, get plants planted, that sort of thing. So I think as far as my focus, you know, community garden stuff, this is a good method overall for that. Um, let me talk a little bit about the row playing thing. I know I touched on it earlier, but basically once you get rid of the idea that you need big rows, if you just use the planting space between plants in a row and ignore the distance between rows that a lot of seed packets give you, that's basically what he did. So he just creates a grid and that's his planting layout, but it's all laid out in here. There's also, and I'll link to it in the show notes. There is a Amazon product. I say Amazon, it's not made by Amazon. It's made by somebody else, but it's a planting guide that is based on the square foot method. It's a little square. You set down your soil. It has holes all over it that are color coded. You pick the right color for the kind of seed you're planting, poke your holes, plant your seeds. You're good to go. Um, so I'll put, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, but the other, the rest of the book, after you get past those first two chapters I talked about, are all just different ways of implementing or modifying or accessorizing your square foot garden. So there's a chapter on planning a little bit. Um, there's a chapter on building, which, you know, that's not technically part of the method, but you do need to know how to build the things. Um, he's got uh, a whole chapter on his Mel's Mix. I believe that's where he actually talks about Pete, too. Uh, and then you have... Uh, how to, a planting guide, uh, growing and harvesting. So some of this is just generic gardening advice, which is, if you're experienced, a lot of this isn't going to be anything revolutionary, but if you're new to gardening, he goes over the basics. So it's still a pretty good primer for that. Uh, primer or primer? I never know how it's supposed to be pronounced. I, I know we, Americans and English people pronounce it differently too, so whatever. Uh, he also has vertical gardening that covers trellises, things like that. Uh, season extension, really good if you're in a cold climate. Uh, us warm climate gardeners, the only real season extension we can do is if you're somewhere like uh, here in Kern County or the Imperial Valley, 
if you get really, really, really hot summers where the plants just shut down for the summer or die back, um, shade cloth. <laughs> That's about all we can do as far as season extension. Uh, our winters aren't bad enough to care about it. Uh, and then there is actually, chapter 10 is special gardens and gardeners. That actually does cover um, adjusting for disabled gardeners and that sort of thing. And I do apologize if I've sounded distracted a couple of times. Uh, I am recording in my backyard. And the hummingbirds, as I've said in other episodes, are having a field day this time of year. Uh, I actually had one just fly right up to me, look me straight in the eye for a few minutes, and then fly off. So, um, yeah, sorry about that. And then he has an appendix with, I believe, like planting grids. He has an index. So it is a fully indexed book. He has a glossary. Uh, planting schedules, which are really useful, um, although it's going to vary in use usability depending upon your climate, but... Um, and then, uh, oh, a chart of the plant families. Plant families are a really important thing for new gardeners to understand. So having a chart like this is actually handy, like knowing all the different crops that are in the carrot or the goosefoot. Why is he saying goosefoot? Most people would just say, you know, beet or spinach family. Or, um, but eh, eh, I guess goosefoot is technically true too. Uh, mustards, things like that. Knowing these families lets you understand the diseases they can get, uh, growing conditions to a degree, although that's going to vary a little bit between plant to plant, but definitely their growing conditions at least, or I'm sorry, their diseases at least. And yeah, he just has some stuff, a uh, whole bunch of stuff about herbs in the appendix as well. So overall, uh, if you're trying to start some kind of a community or school garden, this is definitely a good way to do it quickly and easily. Uh, even for a home gardener, especially if you have disability issues, you can actually uh, modify this method to really help you out there. So it's it's not a bad one to pick up. Uh, I picked it up used. You can find the older editions used. I believe there's a newer edition, but I'm not sure what's in there. So I can't speak to that. Anyway, uh, that's enough about this one. Next time I will be talking about lasagna gardening by Patricia Lanza. So hope you guys have a great day. Go ahead and go out and enjoy your garden. Bye.